So good morning. All right, we got a few minutes left in morning. How many of you guys start school in the next week or so? Do we got any school starters? Yay? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I do want to give a plug for Christian education. You just saw it. The Lord is leading through this ministry. It truly is a ministry. Um, and for you that don't see some of this, even in our camp ministry also, I just got a, a spreadsheet that has some of our kids that have decided to get baptized, that really want to give their lives to Jesus Christ. I do want to just bring up one thing about our specific school, and I was hoping that Rod would bring this up. You know, we've been praying, and we've actually been a little specific with the number that we've been praying for. And we knew that the Lord was going to bless. We've been praying bolder. Now, my understanding, and I'm not going to give those numbers, but my understanding is that our belief is that we are going to exceed the number that we've been praying for. Uh, to the point where maybe Miss Williams is getting a little nervous. Where are we going to put all these kids? Bring them all. If we need to, we'll send them to Rod's house, and he'll be one of our educators. No. Okay, we've got a no on that one. We want them to have a future, right, where they get a job. Right. Not going to craft. Although we're thankful for craft. Sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for grace. We thank you for salvation that comes alone through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the promise of your soon return. We thank you for bringing us from bondage. Lord, show us what true freedom is. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. For those who don't know, we are studying through the life of who? Moses. Moses. Moshe, the one drawn out and the one who will draw out. And right now, we have just gotten past the call of Moses, and Moses was a very enthusiastic no, I don't want this call. To the point where in the text it says that God gets angry. And finally he's just like, okay, let's, let's use your brother. All right, I'll do it. Now we get to this point, and Moses knows a fight is coming. And I am undermanned. I want you to see this picture. Now, if you are 30 plus, you might remember this. But this rocked the sports world. Not just the boxing world, but the sports world. This was supposed to be a routine fight for whoever's laying on the ground, which his name is. Does anybody remember who that is? 
Not Frasier. It's not that far back. It's color. <laughs> Mike Tyson. In 1990, as the heavyweight world champion, and he had three belts, the IBF, the WBA, and the WC belts. He was 37-0. and 0. He was known for knocking people out before the third round. This was a guy that people feared in the ring. And as you know, between big fights, you go through these little fights to build up the big fight. And he was supposed to meet a guy who was the first contender, and his name was Evander Holyfield. And it was going to be a great fight. But until he got to that, he had to take some, some little fights just to make a little bit of money and, you know, also just to sort of build the hype. And there's a guy, and the guy's standing up there. Does anybody, I know it's really sort of a hard picture to see. Does anybody remember who this is? Buster Douglas. James Buster Douglas. He was low on the contender list. He obviously worked his way up through this. And he was going to make probably a million dollars out of this fight. Actually, my, my parents, before this fight, my dad used to, you ever play the game, would you do this for this amount of money? You know, how much would it take to do this? And my dad said, you know, because they were making millions back in the 80s, they were making millions for these fights. My dad said, would you, would you fight him for a million dollars one round? Would you go one round with Mike Tyson? Now, I don't know if you remember how hard he hit, but it was believed that he was the hardest hitter in the boxing world. So basically, if he punched me at 15 years old, it would kill me. So he said, would you do this knowing that you might go? And we said, oh, yeah. You know, as a 13, 14-year-old, yeah. My dad said, no way. I would never, I wouldn't do that. Because it, all it takes is one hit. One hit. You can run around all you want. It takes one hit, and you're done. Anyways, Buster Douglas said, well, I do want to fight him. And they fight. The odds were 42 to 1 that Buster Douglas would win. Now, I don't know my odds real well, but I'm assuming if it's just a, that if you put $1,000 down, you'd get 42000 back. Is that right? Or, or maybe even greater. He was not going to win. And so they fight in Tokyo. And another thing that was going against Buster Douglas is his mom just died. Just three weeks before his mom dies, Tyson does, you know, he doesn't train that much for this fight. And so they get in the ring and Tyson shows his power. Boom, boom, boom. And one, two, three, four. But he noticed that this guy's still standing. He's taking everything and he's hitting back. And in the eighth round, finally Tyson's so frustrated, he does hit him and he knocks him down. And he figures it's done. Tyson is not used to going past the eighth round. He's actually not really used to getting past the fifth round. Well, the guy gets back up and dominates the ninth round. And then in the tenth round, Mike Tyson gets knocked down for the first time in his professional career and doesn't get back up. If you remember the picture, he has his, there's a picture where he's laying on the mat and he has his mouthpiece in his hand. He couldn't make the count. He was 
considered, well, he was going to be considered the greatest of all time before this fight. And this no-name guy comes in and takes him out. It rocked the boxing world. But this is nothing compared to what Moses was supposed to do in Egypt. You, as a man, are going to take out the most powerful empire of that known world. You're going to take on the king. So I understand his reluctance. I don't want to go toe-to-toe with him. Because he's bigger than Mike Tyson. Let's go to our scripture reading. Our, our text is this. Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. And I'm just going to read it what you see up there. And it says this. When the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given the power, I have given given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then they then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son." This dialogue here is before, this is what he tells Moses is going to happen. This is not the actual dialogue. But do you see I underlined a statement there? Because this might be the most important statement of this text. Israel is my firstborn child, my son. See, this whole exodus, there is the real reason that God is taking them out of Egypt is this. Go to the next slide, please. And hit the other one. People are not things. Now, I know that makes sense. But, but what Pharaoh, Pharaoh is holding on to him, onto them. He doesn't want to let them go, not because he can't, but it's sort of like, do you know the child that has a toy that he doesn't play with? And then a new kid comes and visits his house and wants to play with that toy. And does that first child say, yes, please play with that toy? No, oh, I want to play with the toy. And they say, Mom, I want to play with my toy that I haven't played with for three years. And this is the position that Pharaoh is in. He said, I could let them go, but I don't want to. I don't know your God. And I'm not going to, because they're mine. And sometimes we have treated people the same way, as they are things. I know we haven't intentionally done it. Sometimes we've done it in our ministry practices, 
There was a, a friend of mine who had pastored in Mexico. He's from Mexico. He had pastored in Mexico. And he said that what the pastors do there is they actually, in regions, they meet weekly, which is crazy. They meet weekly, like every Sunday they will meet. And they will discuss some things that are happening in the district. I think that's pretty cool. But then they have to also tell how many baptisms they had in that week. In a week! Well, he said, what ends up happening, and he knows this is happening, is people start, because they don't want to be the one that, we had, yeah, we had no baptisms. They started inflating their numbers. And it became, a, it became almost comical. Well, I had three. No, no, but I had four, seven, 3,000. I don't know if it became like that. They, they wanted it believable. But he said that it became this almost auction of who baptized the most. And it was that the people no longer mattered. It was just, they're a number. Have you ever felt like a number? Have you ever felt that people don't care about me as much as what I can do for them? This is what Pharaoh is doing. People are things. I don't care about them, but I don't want to give them up either. Let's read the next text. In Exodus 5, it says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. By the way, the original ask was, was it for, I want them to go and make a new land? No. We're just asking for a couple days vacation. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I won't let him go. This is the question. Who is the Lord. Who is this guy? I know these other ones. I know Happy and Geb and Ra. But this Yahweh guy you talk about, what's he done? Well, he's the God of the Hebrews. Oh, you mean my slaves? Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to let them go. So if you read the text more, and if you read what Patriarchs and Prophets says, is, if you go to the next slide, Pharaoh thought, hmm, these guys are just being lazy. And have you ever heard the expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop, or idle hands make evil, or something like that? This is actually what the Pharaoh said. Uh, we've given them too much time. I'm not going to give them a vacation. We've given them too much time. And when I give them too much time, they conspire for evil. They're, they want insurrection. So we need to take that time of chit-chat out of here. The water cooler talk is done. you got to work harder. So do you remember in the text, and I'm not going to read the whole text, what did they say they have to find on their own now? Straw. They knew they needed straw to hold the bricks together, and he said, you need to go get your own straw. Now, they didn't know that it came from the king. They thought it was just their taskmasters that were having them do this. So they're doing this, and then they couldn't meet the quota 
they get beat, and they said, Pharaoh, your taskmasters are treating us bad. And he said, oh, that's for me. You guys are lazy, lazy people, and I'm not letting you guys go. So you get to the point where in Exodus chapter 6, it says this. Moses reported to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said, if the Israelites won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now, stuff that the text doesn't say, but you find out later, is that the people probably are comfortable, more comfortable being slaves than rocking the boat. You know that this happens throughout history, that we become comfortable and we would rather not do what we're called to do or get out of a bad situation because we don't want to rock the boat. Have you ever seen that in a family? Sometimes if there's an abusive husband and we're like, just don't make your dad angry. Don't make him angry. Or, or how about in a work situation where you've had to walk on eggshells just to appease? Are you telling me during the civil rights movements and even before that Civil War time that everybody was on board with what was going to, that getting rid of slavery? No way. You're rocking the boat. And the Israelites are saying, we're getting treated worse now because of what you're telling the Pharaoh. But here's the challenge. If something's going to get better, usually things will get worse first. Because not everybody's on board. I'm just telling you, if you have a vision that you believe God is calling you to, there is an enemy that is going to try to slap you down. If you have the call to accept Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about just get in the tank. Where you really want to follow Jesus Christ, the enemy and the people in the pews, there will be people that the enemy uses, I'm sorry to say, that will try to oppress what you are doing. The enemy does not want you to give your life to Jesus Christ. And things might get worse before they get better. But God will prevail. Now, if you go back to that question, what was Pharaoh's question? The question was, who is the Lord? And that was not like, oh, who is the Lord? It's like, who is he? The plagues are the answer. See, God could have, if you read, God could have done an A-bomb. You're done. All right? And I'm just taking my people. But he knew that he needed to convince Israel, because remember, now they're not listening to Moses because they're being treated bad. He needed to convince them that he really was the Lord. And also, he had to convince Egypt that he is 
the God of all these other gods. He is the God. And I don't know if you remember this, but the mixed multitude that goes along with Israel is who? Egyptians. So he was still trying to win Egyptian souls. They are the Gentiles that he's trying to bring out. So he could have dropped a bomb on them and said, boom, we're done. I'm taking my people. But he wanted to win their souls too. Because they weren't things. He cared about each one of them. So we get to the plagues. Now the challenge with this sermon is most of you have read this story or you've watched Prince of Egypt or, or something. You've seen the Ten Commandments. You have seen these plagues happen. And we are, but I still want to go through them quickly with you. Because first... Before we get to the plagues, he wants to give, God wants to give the Pharaoh every opportunity. And he says, okay, go to Pharaoh and tell him what you're going to do. I want him to be able to make these choices on his own. So he goes and he does the signs. Do you remember what the first sign is? Before Pharaoh, not the plague yet, but he says, take your staff and do what with it? Throw it on the ground and it will become a... Wow. But it wasn't much of a wow. Because what did Pharaoh's magicians do? The same thing. Boom. Now, if you read Patriarchs and Prophets, it says they didn't really do the, the same thing. And I believe that. They could not make life where life wasn't. But they had magical arts. Actually, if you ever read some stuff about, about the history of Egypt, when Islam came into Egypt to take over the Egyptians... It's believed, the story goes, that actually some of the Egyptian magicians burned their magical, their magical arts books because they were afraid of it getting into other people's hands because it was very powerful. So these people were very deceptive. Boom, okay, you did that. All Pharaoh thought was, okay, you got some... Remember, oh, when his... The snake of his against the, against the magicians, what does is, what is his do that's more special? It eats them. He says, okay, you got powerful magic. I got it too. Okay, you will suffer plagues. And we're going to go through this quickly. The first one is in seven, chapter 7, verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take your hand in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that you, they may worship me in the desert. But until that time, you haven't listened this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Remember, the question is, who is the Lord? This is how you're going to know. With this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. Now, in ancient Mesopotamian history, blood represents life. But when blood is shed, it represents the opposite, death. Now, as you know, probably from your history in church school, that the Nile was the life of Egypt. And what he says is, I am going to take what is life to you 
and turn it to death. The opposite of what you think. And the God at this time, who was the God of the Nile, was happy. I don't know if that's exactly how it's pronounced, but to me it's happy. Doesn't seem so happy right now. Because there is blood, and the text actually says that it's not just the blood, but the fish. And there was a stench over the land. And it wasn't just the Nile, but it's, it was in the cisterns and everything. For how many days? Seven days of water to blood. By the way, have you ever thought about the, the time length of what the plagues actually took? I used to think this only took a few weeks. But there are some scholars that believe it took up to a year, a year of Pharaoh getting beat down before he would let them go. So first, happy. The God who brings fertility through water beat down. But then he says, please take it away, and it is taken away. So they go to the next one, comes up. Seven days have passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. So same, same thing, please let them go. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. Now, frogs were sacred in the country. Hence, the next god is Heket. Heket, if you notice, the head is a frog. But since it's sacred, what can I not do to the frog? I can't kill it. So it said that frogs upon frogs came out of the Nile to the point that they were in the bedchamber, they were in the kneading trough. Could you imagine? In the kitchen, you're trying to make bread. Oh, no. That's it for that bread. Or you lay your head on your pillow to a ribbit, ribbit. But not just one. This is your pillow now. They're all over the place. And they stay and they stay until the time is up. And God, who brought them from the dust, could have easily said, okay, we're done with this one. They're gone. Sent away. But instead, he lets them die there. And, they, and the text says that they're in heaps, heaps of frogs all throughout the land. Just to remind you that I am still God. This is not magic. But the challenge is with the blood, the water to blood, and the frogs, the magicians are keeping up. But then the next one, the next plague was not quite as fortunate for the, for the Egyptians. <clears throat> The next one is the lice or gnats, and that's in verse 16. It says this, Then the Lord God said to Moses, Tell Aaron to stretch out his staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. Now this, ver this word in Hebrew, now some of your texts might say lice, but what it really was is an insect that would bite and sting, so maybe an in-between of a mosquito and a gnat that would bite and leave sores. And it was as the dust of the ground. 
And so there was a God who is the God of dust, and his name is Geb, or Seb. And he says, I'm going to strike your dust, and it's going to be something that bites you and stings you. And the magician said, well, for the first two, we've, we've kept up. Let's try and do this. Boo. Oh, no. It didn't work. This must, according to the text, he says, this must be the finger of God. The magicians had conceded to God. This isn't us. This isn't magic. And Pharaoh didn't listen. So then we go to the next text, which is in verse 21. And he says this, If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. Now, flies are annoying, aren't they? These are not the flies you're used to. What is believed from the text, from the Hebrew, is that these are probably horse flies. One's that will bite even more than the original gnats. And they're going to be all over you. But it's up to you. And Pharaoh finally says, okay, they can go. And once the flies are gone, he says, psych, you're not going. So to the next one. The next one is found in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Pharaoh... Uh, said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. By the way, he keeps inviting him, please let them go. If you refuse to let them go and hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring terrible plague on your livestock in the field and on your horses and donkeys and camels and all your cattle and sheep and goats. Now, as you see, this is the God of cattle. The next one. Oh, oh yeah. Um, you know what? Oh, this was the, the horsefly. Sorry, I forgot to jump to that one. Kefri is the god of the, hor- of the flies. This is the god of cattle. Hathor. Can you say Hathor? And he says, you know what? The god that sustains you, whether it's sacred animals or not, I will make impotent. And so, a lot of their cattle were dead. Now, we know that not all of them died, because some more died in a later plague. But before we get to that plague, we have to go to the the in-between plague, which is found in verse 8. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a handful of soot from the furnace and have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. I do wonder if this is where LeBron James gets what he does. He got it from Moses, a godly man from the Cleveland area. So he says, do this and it will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. Now these boils were erupting, pus-filled, painful boils that could not be healed. 
that it says that some of the tradition says that they would take things like shells and stuff and scrape out the pus. And they had to live with this for days. All right. I concede, yet he did not concede because the Lord says, I will harden his heart. So the next thing to happen is in verse 22, and it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall on Egypt, on men and on animals, on everything that is growing in the fields of Egypt. I don't know if I showed you the... Go to the the next slide. This was Isis, the god of medicine and protection. Um, This goddess was the one that was for the boils. The next one is the goddess of sky. Now, whether you pronounce this nut or newt, this goddess was the protection, not just over the Egyptians, but over the Nile. Hence, where would you get your rain and water? This was a very powerful God, and God said, I will bring something. I will bring hail. Now, if you read the text... It says that this hail will shatter trees. Now, I lived, I just, we just lived seven years in Texas. Now, a few years ago, we had such bad hailstorms that people from out of state, insurance claimers, were coming into state and repair people, and they were setting up shop. They would set up trailers and run people through like a factory, repairing hail damage. The cars, boom, boom, boom. Thousands of cars were left because of hail damage or sold or, or claimed. But those happened with hail maybe this big, maybe this big. I have never seen a tree shattered by hail. I'm assuming the hail probably had to be about a bowling ball size coming down. And he says, this is going to destroy your cattle. You better bring them in, just warning you. And it did its damage. Actually, it undid a lot of what the Hebrews had done. It destroyed structures that the Hebrews had built. But God says, I'm not done. Because, since you are not listening, I'm going to destroy the rest of your vegetation. And in verse 7 of chapter 10, it says, Pharaoh's official said, oh, no, before that, he says, then the Pharaoh said in verse 1, to the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of the officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Remember, the question is, who is the Lord? I want you to remember, I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow, and the rest of the vegetation would be gone. 
And so swarms of locusts came and destroyed the vegetation. So you remember the hail destroyed everything that the Hebrews had done. And the locusts come and destroy everything that Joseph had done. Did you catch this? Every good benefit that God's people had brought into Egypt, remember Joseph and the, and the whole famine and God said, I am going to preserve you through Joseph? He says, now I'm going to take that away from you and I'm going to destroy everything you can eat. Yet they were unfazed, at least Pharaoh was, because if you read what they say to him, it says in verse 7, Pharaoh's official said to him, how long will you let this man be a snare to us? Let the people go. We're done. Let him go. He says, nope, not yet. So the next and second to final one is in verse 21, and it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the darkness will be spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. I don't know if you've ever felt darkness. But it was so dark that people didn't move for three days for fear of what would happen. Yet in Goshen, there was light where the Israelites were. And he says, I have taken your most powerful God, Ra, and blinded him. No longer. See, the thing is, is some people don't realize that he was revealing he is God and these are not. These are not gods. I, if they're gods, I am their gods. They bow to me. Ra would bow to me. He shines for me. And if I want, I can blow him out like this. Yet they were unfazed, or at least Pharaoh was unfazed. And he says, there's one more. And I want you to know there's one more. But this one will destroy you. And you know the rest of the text because we're going to deal with this a little next week. You know that Pharaoh was obstinate and he loses what's dear to him in his child. Now, the plagues were not just destroying other gods, but there is theory within scholars that, the next slide, that God's message to him was what I'm doing a life without God, because I am the Lord, is to undo creation. Remember, it was formless and void. And he says, now Egypt is formless and void. Remember, I made vegetation come up. You no longer have vegetation. Remember on the fourth day when there was a sun that gave light? No, no more. I'm assuming the moon was darkened also at night. Actually, there was no real night, you know. It was just dark. 
Remember your cattle that's created on the fifth day or, or, or your fish, I mean your fish on the fifth day and then your cattle on the sixth day? All of them. All the things that were created during the creation were taken away. And God says, if you don't believe who I am, then you undo creation. But the pinnacle of creation is people. Go to the final slide. This all started because you devalued people. This starts when we devalue people. If we ever feel that somebody is less than me, then we complete the sin of Pharaoh. Because everybody in here is as valuable as I am. And so God wanted to deliver the Israelites, not just out of Egypt, but out of this, th- this way of thinking. I want you to know that you are valuable. You've lived 86 years, whatever, plus as a slave and probably don't see your own value. But you are of highest value to the point in the future I will send my son to die for you.